I think it's a lesson in kind of being true to yourself and listening to your gut. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Jessica Strauser is editor-at-large for Writer's Digest, contributing editor at Career Authors, and author of five popular book club novels, including the Book of the Month selection, Not That I Could Tell. Most recently, A Million Reasons Why released in a new paperback edition, and her latest, The Next Thing You Know, just came out in March from St. Martin's Press. So please welcome Jessica to the show. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So we are going to start by discussing your journey to publication, and we're going to go back kind of all the way back to the beginning. So when did you first start getting interested in writing, and then how long did it take from there before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? So I was a journalist. I was an editor. Um, So I was always interested in writing, but was not necessarily pursuing fiction writing. Um, I was a magazine uh, journalism major, and then I had a, a lot of different jobs in publishing on the other side of the desk. I was an editor for some commercial nonfiction book imprints, I worked for a bunch of different magazines. I did a brief stint in uh, marketing and public relations. So I had sort of done a little bit of everything. And I wound up as the chief editor of Writer's Digest magazine, which is, of course, uh, for anyone listening who's not familiar, leading publication in North America for people who want to be writers or for working writers looking to improve their craft or the business side of things. So I think, you know, uh, I think hopefully what made me well suited for that job was that I had already worked in so many different areas of publishing and could kind of relate to things our readers were interested in pursuing from a number of different angles. And I myself, I think if you have always had the writing bug in any form, it would be hard to have that job for very long without wanting to try your hand at uh, some of the other stuff that we're tackling in the magazine too. So, you know, I started sort of moonlighting as an aspiring fiction writer and didn't tell anybody. I mean, I was literally (laughs) writing in the closet, very literally writing in the closet. After I had my first baby, there was nowhere for my desk in my house. And I put it in my (sighs) giant walk-in closet and um, like, which was like in this old attic with a bunch of spiders and it was not Oh, no. (laughs) Yes. But um, I was, you know, I was actually really terrified to show my work to anybody. I felt like I was good at my job at at Writer's Digest. And, you know, I was respected in that job. And the logical thing to do, I think everybody thought was, oh, my gosh, if you some point, if you have a novel, you already know some people, you already know some agents, like you should call them up and ask them if they'd want to take a look. But that was, for me, the last thing I wanted to do because I I didn't have the confidence. I wasn't sure if my work was any good. So when I first started pitching, I pitched people who I did not know, had never met, had no connection to, took a completely backwards approach. (laughs) Can you tell me more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author? I really don't think that there was one moment 
But the turning point for me was definitely, I had started my career at Writer's Digest as a junior, like an editorial assistant. I was literally faxing galleys to people back in the early (laughs) (laughs) hours, which should give you an idea of how long ago it was. And then, you know, that had this full circle moment in my editorial career where I had come back to this magazine where I had gotten my start. It really was a dream job. At the time, I was like, oh my goodness, I just landed my dream job. I I get to interview successful writers for our cover stories. I get to read these brilliant craft articles about how to craft a novel and how to do all these other things I've always been interested in. I mean, I was I would have been happy doing that probably for the rest of my career, if I could be honest. But There was always this sense when I was interviewing these writers who I'd always, you know, admired. And I mean, I was interviewing writers who I'd studied in college, like Alice Walker and Ann Tyler. And it was a sense of the only thing I could think of that would be better than what I'm doing is what you're doing. Like this, you know, it was just I was really in awe of um, these writers who had had these long prolific, creative careers. And it wasn't ever something that I thought that I could do. I never had taken creative writing classes in college or anything like that. I was on a very practical path. Like, how can I apply my love of books and my love of reading and my love of writing to a job that has an actual study paycheck? You know, that kind of seemed like the, the logical path. So, but I think... You know, there was a point after I came back to the magazine where I started getting really serious about trying. All of the creative writing I'd done up until that point was very, like, you know, half-baked. Lots of started stories that I had never finished. And there was a moment where I kind of thought, you know, I wonder if I can do this. I think the cumulative effect of interviewing so many writers who you admire is that eventually you realize they're just regular people (laughs) who worked really hard (laughs) at something, you know, they're not up on this pedestal. They don't have some magical power that you don't have. So I think, you know, eventually not only did I want to give it a try, but yeah, I just had that sense that I, when I started trying really hard to actually finish a novel, I don't, I never had any expectation that it would be published. I really just wanted to see if I could do it and to actually follow through with a step toward this kind of lofty dream that I'd never followed through with before. Mm. All right. So usually I ask people how they learned about the publishing industry and how to query and everything like that, but you came from the publishing industry side. Yeah. So how did you kind of make that switch and how did you learn how to write a query and all those different things? It's definitely different doing it for yourself than, you know, (laughs) there's a difference between, knowing what a query letter is and seeing examples of good ones and then being able to distill your own Mm -hmm. entire novel you just wrote into one letter. I do feel like because I had um, a background in things like marketing, like I used to write the jacket copy for nonfiction books. So I knew how to write a compelling pitch. I knew how to sum up work. I did not really know how to sum up my own work. You kind of had to take a step back with something that you're that close to. And as I said, I wasn't I wasn't leaning on anybody close to me for support or help when I was doing that. I was really, really, really shy about starting to query and putting my work out there. And 
So I think for me, I will say it was not when I did sign with my first agent, by the time I sold my first book, I was on my second agent. Mm. When I signed with my first agent, I had gotten a revise and resubmit request. So nothing about the process was necessarily smooth, but he saw something in the story, was generous enough with his time to grant me a phone call. It wasn't an email. It was an actual phone call. Went over what he thought were the weaknesses in the novel. I agreed with him, understood what he was saying. It was like something clicked in that phone call, opened a new document and rewrote the entire book from page one. And after that, um, he signed me. He shopped that book for about 18 months and was never able to sell it. Yeah. So then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from deciding to query to sending your first book contract? So I had this first submission that made the rounds very slowly for 18 months. I collected what my agent was calling rave rejections <laughs> during that time. And I, during that time, I followed the advice that we often gave in Writer's Digest to write something else. Don't sit along, around and wait for rejection letters to accumulate, accumulate. So I wrote another novel and I felt really good about it. For the first time, I had been working on, I I mentioned that I signed on a revise and resubmit request. I had been working on that first novel on and off for six years by the time Mm. that made the rounds and did not sell, which was just a really long time to kind of be. I learned so much from that process, but I was so ready to move on and be working on something else. So I think during the year that I was collecting rejections and writing something new. It was just so freeing to be writing something new. And I just kind of dove in and had this creative fun with it. And I, I it's, it's my debut novel is called Almost Missed You. And it's a story that's told out of order. And I wrote it out of order. And the whole time I was writing it, I didn't even know if it was going to be a coherent story. It was just pure fun. And I showed it to some friends who I trusted. And really, for the first time ever, I was getting text messages at like three in the morning. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't put this down. I'm so mad at you. I have this meeting in the morning. (laughs) So I felt really, really good about it by the time I sent that to my agent. Because when he kind of circled back and said, I don't think we're going to sell this first one. I was like, do you have anything else? I said, yes, I do. And he did not see it the way that I did. He thought it was too different from the first book that he had signed me for and he was just he was not interested Mm. so at that point I had to either stay with that agent and write something different or you know find different representation who would believe in that story and I really didn't know what I was going to do I just tabled it and basically did nothing so my first agent and I did eventually go second ways but I still didn't know if I was ever going to pitch the novel that I had written I actually went to a writing conference and at that conference there were a bunch of agents there and I was talking with some of them and they asked what I was working on. And I kind of said, I'm at this crossroads where I have one project that made the rounds and didn't sell and I have another project. And you know, I kind of had lost confidence on that and an agent asked to see it and I sent it to her and she loved it, signed me right away, sold the book in a preempt in a two book deal in under two weeks. Mm. And that manuscript had just been sitting on my hard drive for like almost a year at that point while I like wasn't even sure if I wanted to submit it or not. So no edits before you went on in submission? No. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think there was like one little timeline tweak, but it was literally like something I could do in one night. Mm. 
there were no other edits. Yeah. So I had already worked on it really, really hard with beta readers and things before that stage. But then I think it's a lesson in kind of being true to yourself and listening to your gut. And, you know, publishing is so subjective and not letting one person's, you know, opinion of a project dampen your enthusiasm for the project. Yeah. All right. It is time. Can you read your successful query letter for us? So this is the pitch letter for A Million Reasons Why, which is my book that came out in 2019. And um, I still had my same agent who I've now published five novels and I've been represented by the with the same agent by the same agent for all five of them. But I was at this point where I was in between contracts. Um, my publisher had was undergoing a staffing change where my editor had left and they passed on my option material. And so my agent was submitting that novel wide. So I did have an actual query letter for a million reasons why. So here it is. When a DNA database links two strangers hundreds of miles apart as having the same father, for one of them, it's an answered prayer, a lifeline in every sense of the word. But for the other, it will dismantle everything she knows to be true about the people she loves most and force her to decide how much she'd put on the line for someone she's starting to wish she'd never met. In A Million Reasons Why, Jessica Strauser takes the it-could-happen-to-you sense of drama and suspense that readers loved and not that I could tell and takes them to a whole new level. Sila is dying. That is, she will be if she doesn't get help soon. After being diagnosed with kidney disease during her pregnancy, a series of complications endangered the likelihood of ever finding a living organ donor match. In some ways, Sila is already a ghost in her house, fading into grief over both her mother's recent death and her marriage, which hasn't survived her illness. It's Sila's young son whose presence pulls her through the worst days. He needs her, until a long-shot DNA test reveals new hope for both a donor and some semblance of family, a half-sister born to the father Sila never knew. When Caroline gets the email from a woman claiming to share her father, she's sure it's a mistake. Her parents are deeply involved in raising her three young children, and their strong marriage has always been a model for her own. But when she confronts them with the results, his infidelity comes to light, throwing the family into a tailspin. As Caroline reconciles with the ripple effect of long-buried secrets, she can't help but imagine how differently things might have turned out for everyone had certain truths been revealed sooner. Sila, knowing her life may depend on winning over her sister, paints a careful, if not entirely accurate, self-portrait, knowing she can't hide her reasons for reaching out forever. Soon, Caroline must decide what she'd sacrifice for a virtual stranger and which version of her own life she's most afraid to risk. But for Sila, a second chance might come too late. She's been unraveling too fast and for too long. Her son hangs in the balance, and she can't go on like this much longer. One sister's dream come true could very well be the other's waking nightmare. The question is, which is which? All right. Thanks. So how has your experience been since signing that first book contract? Especially let us know if there were any surprises along the way. I'd love to hear especially what surprised you considering you had been around the publishing industry for a while. I think one of the biggest surprises has been how much overlap there is in books. I think the average person does not understand, you know, that when an author is on tour, and they're doing events in libraries and bookstores or virtual events and things like that. And they're talking about one book. They may very well be on a really tight deadline for another book at the same time. They might be revising another book at the same time. They might be, there's just so much overlap. And especially since I started this project um, with young children and with a full-time job, 
at a magazine. It was the overlap that caught up to me. I had figured out how to, you know, build the time to actually write into my day. But once it turned into building in time to write and building in time to promote this project and building in time to visit this book club and building in time to, you know, just do this um, byline for this magazine that's hopefully going to send a link back to the book. And it was just, that's when it all starts to pile up. I think people think your book comes out, you promote it for a little bit, and then you go, then you work on the next line. And there's really nothing linear about it. There's so much overlap Mm -hmm. once you get in the pipeline, which is a good thing, but it's definitely an adjustment. Yeah. I think another thing would be too, just how valuable it is to have a network of other writers who are um, at a similar stage of their career One of the best things about my debut year was being part of a debut group. It was 2017. It was called 17 Scribes. Just having that, you know, it was like a closed Facebook group. Just having that group of people who were also working toward their first books coming out and sharing experiences was enormously helpful. And I think set me up to really value that sounding board and want to keep it with me throughout the career. So I'm a member of several different writing co-ops and groups where I just find it really helpful to have, you know, colleagues. So you're not doing this all by yourself. Mm. It's time for author DNA. It's the quick round, just classifications we like to put writers in. Are you a panther or a plotter? Planter. <laughs> plotter. Okay, got it. No, I'm a, pl- I'm a panther who wishes I was a plotter and tries okay. very hard. It's funny because I'm a pure like pantser. And so when people are like pantser, I'm like, nope, you're a plotter. <laughs> if you do any plotting <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> I, I usually have an idea of the end, but not how I'm going to get there. Hmm. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Over, overwriter. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? In the middle. <laughs> okay. Some people say afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. When starting with a new project, do you typically start with a character or plot or concept or something else first? It's usually concept or a question, like a moral dilemma or a thematic question. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Silence, but like background noise is okay, but not music or somebody talking. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? A little bit both. I think I'm too much of a perfectionist to get it right before I move on, but I do like to at least go over it twice before I move on. So every day I'll review what I did the day before, before I start. Mm. What tools or software do you use to draft? Just Word. I'm old school. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Oh, the thing I'm not doing. The grass is always green. (laughs) That is also a common answer. (laughs) Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? I used to hop around a lot more than I do now, but I'm still open to doing both. Sometimes I skip ahead a little bit. Like if I don't know what comes next, I'll write the next thing I know. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Probably a little bit of both. It depends on my mood. (laughs) All right. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We uh, heard your query already. Now we're going to get into the second cue. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had while you're acquiring and while you're on submission and were they realized or how did you overcome them? When I was on submission and I, I probably still feel this now, but especially when I was on submission, um, time just felt like such a hot 
commodity. Maybe because I was a mom of a baby at the time. And then later when I was querying, I had a baby and a toddler. And it was like, there were never enough hours in the day. And all the time I invested in anything, I had to think so carefully about what I was spending my time on. And I was barely sleeping. And I think when you get into that mentality, it starts to feel like this fear that if something doesn't work out, you've wasted your time. You know, Mm -hmm. like I have taken my time away from my children when they are really tiny. And I have put all this energy into working on this manuscript for nothing. It's all going to be for nothing if it doesn't work out, which is a, which is a terrible thing to put hanging over your own head. And I don't view it that way anymore. I feel like no time spent writing is time wasted, even if the writing doesn't turn out. I feel like no time spent pursuing a goal that has always interested you is time wasted. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of parents in particular go through a phase where they feel really, really guilty about anything they're spending time on that's, you know, quote unquote for themselves. And that was definitely top of my mind. When I first started, I did not have any expectations of getting published. But once I had an agent and he wasn't able to sell the work, that's when it started to feel very within reach, but I still wasn't sure it was going to happen. And yeah, I definitely look at that differently now though. Mm -hmm. I think that that time is time well spent regardless of how it turns out. Yeah. I just saw a tweet today talking about that, that very issue about, you know, we think of books that don't sell as failures or time wasted, but you wouldn't tell like a concert violinist that his time spent practicing scales were wasted. And it's really analogous to, you know, writing, especially the first book. Exactly. And I think, you know, other writers were really good about offering support in that way too. And I was, I was doing, even after you've signed the contract, it becomes, it still remains an issue because you don't know how the book is going to do. And you're still, you're really burning at both ends. Then sometimes it's hard to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. You feel like you have to say yes to every little thing, like, oh, the library gig, we're probably only going to have three people there, but I can't say no, because what if the right person was there? And then I sold a million. It's hard to decide what is and is not worth your time. That never goes away, Um, especially if you're trying to juggle a lot of other responsibilities to your family or job, things like that. And um, I happened to be doing an interview with Debbie Makemer, um, not that long after I had, my first book had been announced, but it wasn't out yet. And when she found out where I was in my career and that I had young kids, she actually stopped the interview and said, can I just talk to you for a second? And she said, I really just want you to know that all the time that you're spending on this is not time you're taking away from your kids. It's time that you are showing them that it's possible to achieve a dream. And she said, you know, her kids were grown and have had enough life experience to be able to actually say back to her, mom, when we were little and you were working on all this, that was so inspiring to see. Like, it was amazing to see you actually have a book on the shelf with your name on it and achieve these things. And she was like, you know, time that you feel like you're taking away from them, you're not, you're demonstrating to them what it means to work hard, what it means to make sacrifices to go after a goal. 
and, you know, what it is to finally get to realize a dream that you've had your whole life. And it was really, I've never forgotten her kindness in telling me that. And mm-hmm. my kids are still little, so I don't know if that's actually true or not, but <laughs> I appreciate her saying it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now it's time for the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? I try really hard not to have any writing quirks. I try not to be precious about it. Like anything goes. When I started, I would write on my lunch break. I would write late at night. I would be dictating into my phone in the car on my commute. And um, now I'm writing, you know, in the parking lot of the gymnastics studio and on the soccer sidelines and I've always tried not to tie anything about my writing to any kind of special special ritual or any kind of special place I have to be because it's just not very practical for me. But really helpful revision tool is to read out loud, especially now that audiobooks are so um, prevalent. Uh, your book's going to be read aloud to a lot of readers. So it's helpful to hear how it sounds aloud when you're writing. So sometimes if I am in a stage where I'm revising a chapter, I like to be alone so no one can hear me <laughs> reading my own work aloud. When you were in the lowest parts of your writing and publishing journey, whatever that may have been, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? During some of my lowest parts of my journey, and there have been a few, I haven't been afraid to just kind of pause and step away. And I think that's counter to any advice that you will actually hear from people. (laughs) Usually it's more like, you can't stop, you can't give up, just keep going. But I think sometimes when you're starting to lose sight of the horizon and you're feeling really discouraged, it's okay to stop for a minute, you know, especially if it's bringing you more frustration than joy (laughs) to be doing it at that point. There's no shame in just taking a breath and not floundering trying to figure out what to do next, not forcing yourself to make any kind of decision. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just kind of step away and get a little bit more perspective and let the sting of a rejection wear off. I think that's been what ultimately helped me through all of it. It's just not rushing to some kind of solution or trying to force a solution. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you might like to warn listeners about? So maybe they won't make the same ones. I don't know if it's a mistake, but I do think that once you realize that a relationship isn't working for you in your publishing pursuit, particularly if Mm -hmm. I have talking, I have talked to so, I think because I, um, left one agent and ended up with a second agent before I uh, sold my first book. Maybe I attract stories from people who are thinking about leaving their agent. But I think it is so much more common than any writers realize to kind of shake up your team if something's just not working. We don't always know what the best fit, especially if we're just starting out. We don't necessarily know what we're looking for even. So I think... A mistake would be if you realize that you have not chosen the right partner for your journey, you know, staying, (laughs) staying in one place out of fear that you're never going to find another partner. I know a lot of people who've stayed with an agent, even though they were unhappy or stayed with a 
publishing house, even though they were unhappy because they were too scared to make a change because they were scared that the change would never happen and they would end up with nothing. But I do think that things have a way of working out. The right partner for you is out there. If you feel like you're, the partner you've chosen is not working for you, there's not this stigma. I think people feel like, oh my gosh, people never leave their agents. It's not true. It happens all the time. It's very common. And I, mm-hmm. I think um, knowing that you need to, need to make a change and not making it is probably the, just dragging your feet on that is, I don't want to call it a mistake, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just helps to know that whatever you are going through in your submission process, you are not alone. (laughs) Somebody else has been there through. You're not the first person that it's happened to and you won't be the last person that it's happened to. And there is a precedent for it and it will work out. Yeah, that was that was my whole point in starting this podcast. So, yes. (laughs) Okay. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? I think one of the first, one of the most important lessons I learned is I think a lot of people think that once you sign your first first book contract, you're home free. There's so much emphasis on getting your debut book contract that I think everybody thinks like there's so much emphasis on how to get that first yes, that there's it kind of perpetuates this misconception that once you get your first yes, you're just going to keep on hearing yes. You're just going to keep on hearing yes, like you're in. And that's not true. Every career, a big lesson for me has been not only in my own career, but in having the privilege of being able to call a number of other writers, friends, and um, having been in the business um, in one capacity or another for several years now. Every career has ups and downs, sometimes very close together, sometimes drastic ups and drastic downs, and sometimes nobody else knows about them. (laughs) Sometimes nobody else, you know, it's that whole thing where everybody makes everything look great on social media and you never know what's actually going on behind closed doors. So I honestly think one of the biggest lessons has just been that rejection isn't a thing that you have to learn how to deal with at the beginning and then it's behind you. It's always going to be part of, there's always going to be highs and lows and that that's completely normal. That's everybody. I think because people don't talk to talk about it, sometimes when it's happening to you, you feel like it's just you and Mm -hmm. it's definitely not just you. It's, it's just that there's so much um, guidance and help out there focused on the first book that you don't think about you know, facing some of the same questions and uncertainties at other stages in your career. But it absolutely, in some ways, it gets easier. In some ways, it gets more complicated. Mm-hmm. Just that ups and downs are normal. And yeah, you just got to ride out the lows and wait for the next, for things to go back your way. Yeah. And keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people or even organizations who helped you along the way and how? My agent, Barbara Powell at Irene Goodman Literary Agency is completely amazing. She is just, I'm so lucky to have her as a partner in this journey. And she is so respectful and collaborative and One of my favorite things about her is that when she's very, very responsive and fast and she seems to know, she knows how much anxiety you usually have if you come to her with a question or with a new pitch and 
she always does her best to prioritize her current clients and get back to them in one shape or another, even if it's just to say, I have this, I'm thinking about it, I'll get to you next week. I just really, really appreciate everything about working with her. Writer's Digest, I've continued to contribute to the magazine from the outside, even though I'm no longer at the editor's desk. And I just firmly believe in staying a part of the writing community. I think we all need each other. And the people behind Writer's Digest are good people who who believe the same thing. And I also contributed to this website, Career Authors. Um, and the career authors team has, it consists of some other writers and um, editors and agents. And we all work together. It's really a labor of love to put on, uh, put out basically this free website and newsletter to help other writers. We have an annual retreat that we put on. They have been an amazing support to me, but it's also just been an honor to be part of the work that they've done. I mentioned I'm the, a member of a few different um, writer co-ops. The 17 Scribes was the one that the first one that made me realize the value of having that community. Um, I'm a member of Tall Poppy Writers, which is an all woman writing co-op marketing organization, won an innovation award in the state of Wisconsin, where it was founded by bestselling author Anne Garvin. And I'm really thankful to the Tall Poppies for all of their support as well. All right. Jessica, before you go, could you tell us about your latest release, The Next Thing You Know? Yes, The Next Thing You Know is a story of a woman working as an end-of-life doula. So she helps um, people who are facing the end of life come to terms with that transition, whatever it means to them. And most of her clients are old or sick. One day she opens her door and there is a... The draggled man, her own age, who's just rolled up in a muddy Jeep, smelling like a bonfire. And she doesn't recognize him, but he's a pretty famous indie musician who has fallen out of the public eye. And nobody knows where he went to, but um, where he is, is on her doorstep. And he's got this degenerative condition where he's physically losing the ability to play his guitar. And so the book is about uh, the connection between the two of them and what it means to live every day to its fullest, no matter no matter how many days you have left. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with my listeners. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Jessica's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.